email todayradio at rte.ie. Now, some of your texts to 51551 about some of the issues we have been discussing this morning. John says, wouldn't it be awful for democracy if the dialogue about Kamala Harris's uh, Kamala Harris was all about being a woman and her skin colour? That's just virtue signalling. It's the substance of the person that matters. She could be great. And as I said, that comes from John. Lots and lots of you texting about the issue of uniforms and whether or not we're going to need to wash them or not every day um, when the kids return to school. Uh, one person, Cathy, says, what's the logic for washing school uniforms every day? if the virus only survives for a few hours on fabric. Um, Eileen says regarding children's uniforms, if the virus lives on surfaces for a max of 72 hours, three days, then Monday's uniform can be reworn after three days, Tuesday's three days later and so on. Um, we might try and get some clarity from that uh, on that from our next guest if possible. And um, We're going to be talking about the health system generally now though because a new colour-coded system for identifying different stages of COVID-19 outbreaks similar to w- those used for weather warnings is being developed by public health experts. The system for dealing with the virus over the coming months would have four phases. There'd be blue, yellow, orange and red. Now this news comes as an outbreak of COVID-19 in NACE General Hospital has been identified, closing a 31-bed ward in the process. So is this a sign of things to come? Can our health system survive the autumn and winter months? Well, to discuss this, I'm joined by health economist at Cork University Business School at UCC, Brian Turner, by President of the Irish College of General Practitioners and Cork-based GP Dr Mary Favier and I'm also joined in studio by Professor Alan Irvine who is a council member of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association and himself a consultant dermatologist and good morning to you all and thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, I might come to yourself Alan first on on the broader question of the health system and and whether or not it can survive a second wave of COVID-19 come the winter months. What what is your take on it? A lot of people very concerned about it. Well I think people are right to be concerned and we're we're concerned from the consultant's point of view as well and what we're concerned about is what our pre-covid world was like it's hard to imagine that everybody thinks the world was was somewhat uh, functional in in february before covid happened but the truth is the health system was under extreme pressure then we had record trolley weights over the winter we had an average of 93 95 percent bed occupancy which we should be running at about 80 percent that occupancy obviously has been shredded by COVID because of social distancing and and the the, the delays in getting people around the around the wards. So our, our capacity has gone down and it likes looks likely that the demand will go up. So what we're seeing is a if you like a systemic uh, legacy mismatch mm-hmm. between capacity and demand. It's going the to be made worse. What's capacity at the moment? We're running in the eighties at the minute. You know, uh, some Already. hospitals are up to are up to ninety. There's some uh, hospitals where there are still there are still trolleys. There's still lots of trolleys on the IMO trolley watch. So we haven't cleared the trolleys in January, in July, or in August. Um, and these would traditionally be quiet months with people on holiday, people overseas, fewer respiratory illnesses, uh, fewer elective surgeries. So when the system is showing pressure at this time of year it's a poor harbinger for how we're going to be in November or or January so or February. What, literally what is going to happen because I mean the the scene that you're describing we're all very familiar with you know mm-hmm. the the stories and tales from hospitals around the winter months of, of the long waiting lists and uh, the trolleys and uh, the high numbers on trolleys and, and, and all of that and the problems in emergency departments if we're already at 80 to 90 percent capacity as you say in the middle of the summer what is going to happen? How will the health system cope? Well, what we're going, to, what we will see is we'll, we'll see pressure on scheduled care. So scheduled care is care that has to happen. Uh, for example, cancer surgeries, cancer screenings, colonoscopies, all of these important regular uh, work that's already very backed up is going to come under more pressure because what happens 
in a demand-led service, when people come into the emergency department with respiratory illnesses, many of them will just have regular flu or other respiratory illnesses, community pneumonias, but they'll have to be treated as if they could potentially have COVID. So that will create, uh, they will push out space for elective care. So the first thing that might get hit is elective complex care, where you need to have somebody in an intensive care bed or a high dependency bed after their surgery. So we're going to see a lot of pressure on elective care. And they are the people who would have already had, in a lot of cases, their surgeries or appointments cancelled Would they uh, in, the, in the height of the pandemic. It's the same people again? It's the same people again, but if you can imagine there's a continuous flow. So people present either symptomatically or for screening. They get a cancer, for example, identified, and then they go down a programme where they will have complex care, either surgery, chemotherapy, therapy, radiotherapy, all of that was disrupted for three or four months. So there will be more people coming on stream, cancers that have not yet been detected because they kept developing through those three or four months when screening services were closed, when colonoscopies and OGDs were were not done as as frequently. So there's a bulge, like pent up demand for that scheduled care. And there are people who've had their their care uh, delayed. I think most people who were in that three or four months with cancer care will have been sorted out uh, either Mm -hmm. By, by a range of different mechanisms, but the bulge of people who were not diagnosed will be will be flushing through the system now. And is this inevitable then, in in your view, that these sort of uh, appointments and surgeries and uh, etc. will have to be cancelled? Well, I think it's a very complex system, and I think it's going to have to be managed. And inevitable sounds a little bit too defeatist for me. I think there are lots of things that we can do. Clearly, all the public health messaging is really important. All the respiratory etiquette, hand washing, we can't say that enough. And you've been very good in RTE. In, uh, at implementing that and, and in encouraging that, that will reduce the number of flu cases that come to our to our ED departments. It'll reduce the number of community acquired pneumonias probably by having better um, better respiratory etiquette. We're seeing that in Australia. There's a lesser flu outbreak than there is. So there's a lot of people things that people everybody in the public can do by adhering to these very clear messages from the public health teams and from the government. That will really help as a community effort because it is really a societal issue this as well as being a, a health issue we're talking about the pressures on the health system mm. there are other things we can do we can get more step down care we can get more home care packages so people who are medically ready to go home can go home and is that the sort of thing that can be done quickly that can be done quickly you know home care packages are are to some degree a matter of funding and activation in the okay. community services and that will empty out our, our our hospitals a little bit more we can employ more consultants as well we've about 500 empty consultant posts that we need urgently to fill and that will increase the efficiency of having more senior decision makers around. Okay, I might get back to you on the staffing that. actually because um, I mm-hmm. want to get to the other guests as well and, sure. and I think staffing is going to come up um, with them perhaps as well. Uh, Dr Mary Favier, as I said, is also on the line um, and thank you for joining us this morning, Mary. What is uh, what, are, what are your concerns or how concerned are you about the coming months? Well, I'm a general practitioner in Cork and we're in a very busy August general practice which is which is unusually busy and we have concerns into the autumn because one because we're so busy uh, uh, historically and we have put a lot of effort into the getting winter ready uh, general practice was was central to the provision of care during the covid you know outbreaks of march and april and it was one of the parts of the service that actually stayed upright and and functioning and we need to we need to keep it that so that it doesn't get overwhelmed because if it does get overwhelmed it will have very significant knock-on effects to the rest of the service. To, to give you an example, uh, there are 21 million consultations take place in general practice every year. Uh, and 90% of those are entirely dealt with and sorted out in the general practice community setting. 
But if that if that efficiency drops to to eighty nine percent, just a one percent change, there will be two hundred thousand extra patients going in through emergency departments and out and, and outpatients, five hundred and fifty a day across our hospitals. So we need to absolutely keep general practice you know upright and functional. And, and but what, we're is already the, what is the threat to that, Mary? Is it well, that GPs themselves will contract the disease? Uh, it's a bit of both. The, the difficulty is before COVID, we were at the limits of capacity. We have two hundred GPs plan, planning to retire this year, and only one hundred and sixty-one trainees completing their specialist four-year GP training. And you know, and it varies across the country. Six percent of Dublin GPs are planning to retire this year, but ten percent of those in Mayo. If you think about it, there's eighty-three GPs in Mayo, and eight of them are over seventy, so they're highly likely to retire. And they, anybody over the age of seventy has obviously got COVID. They need to this, you know cocoon. So the, the, the threat of practice failure is, is a real one. And so, for instance, a, a GP in a single-handed practice, whether it's just one GP and probably a nurse and receptionist, if that GP gets any respiratory illness, they'll need to self-isolate, await a test. And at best, that practice will close for three days, could close for five days. And you need to stay out of work until your symptoms have settled for 48 hours. This applies to any person. So you could have practices in areas that... that that close completely. And a third of all GPs in Mayo are single-handed. So there's very significant issues. We have winter issues around children and childhood illness. Uh, About 5,000 children a day present to GPs with some manner of means of of an illness averaged across the year. But very often in the winter, it's respiratory, it's the cough, the cold. Parents, Parents would identify that. We have an issue about how we're going to manage that because we've got very important infection control procedures going on in our practices, how we get people in, how we get people out, how we keep people safe. And so now there's a lot of work being done in the Department of Health, in the HSE, and the Irish College of GPs is meeting them. We're on a twice-weekly basis at the moment, really trying to prepare for the winter. Okay. And is there anything specifically that could help then at this point, do you think? We need to look at every way that we can support the number of GPs, which is, you know, in the longer term is things like increasing training, but in the, sh- in the short term to incentivise GPs to stay in practice, to potentially increase the number of sessions GPs are doing already. And uh, how do you incentivise GPs to stay in practice? Are you talking about more money? No, no, the better support generally. The money isn't isn't the issue for most GPs. GPs are, are generally working 10, 11 hour days. They have huge administration burdens. They need more practice nursing time. They need more administration support time so that GPs aren't doing a substantial amount of admin tasks, which they are. Okay. We need computerization to support so that we're not... For instance, we have to start a flu vaccine campaign for, for the first time in the country. All children between 2 and 12 are going to get flu vaccine and it's going to be free... To, to, to get it for all, whether you have a medical card or not. So in our practice alone, that's 700 children. Now, if we offer a 15-minute appointment to do that, which we would need to to allow for appropriate infection control in the paperwork, we have to find 175 hours of additional nursing time, which is effectively four and a half weeks of a full-time practice nurse. So that's going to displace care. That's going to displace the nurses who are doing the blood tests this morning, doing the dressings. So, so more nurses is what you're saying then. Exactly. Really, All right, those, okay. 
Yes, exactly. Okay. But Stay it's much an awareness way. of it because there's, there's a tendency to, for the hospitals to think that they can move things out into the community and that will solve problems. The community is, is one of the most functional parts of the service, but we have to be very careful we don't overwhelm it. All right, stay in the line if you don't mind. We're also joined by Brian Turner, who's a health economist, and thank you, Brian, for your patience on the line there. Um, we've heard both from Alan and Mary, one of the key um, things that they see in terms of dealing with the virus in the next coming months is, is staff, really, more consultants, more nurses, uh, more money, you could say. Where does it stop, though, or how can we afford it? Well, I think they've both hit the nail on the head, really. Capacity is the biggest issue, uh, not just at the moment, but I mean, historically, capacity has been the issue for the Irish health system. Um, I suppose just to, to kind of emphasise that, um, you know, if you look at the, the health service capacity review, which was done in 2018, which kind of uh, you know, complements the, the Slaunch Care report, uh, that predicted a need over the next 10 years for an additional 2,600 hospital beds. Uh, and a 48% increase in primary care workforce, mm. uh, 600, nearly 600 additional consultants, and, and that was pre-COVID. So that's, that gives you a, a sense of the, the scale of challenge that we face in terms of uh, increasing capacity. And has any of um, that happened? Um, I think it, very, a very little bit uh, has happened. It's not, it hasn't um, been a huge uh, sea change in terms of the numbers. Um, but I think we need to accelerate that uh, and, and bring a lot of that forward, um, particularly you know, to, to, to deal with COVID and the aftermath of COVID. And as Alan mentioned, we've had uh, cancellations of non-COVID-related treatment, which is going to lead to a, an increase in demand, a built-up demand for those kind of treatments. I mean, just to put that into perspective, between February when we first had uh, a COVID case in Ireland and June, which are the latest figures from the National Treatment Purchase Fund, the, uh, the inpatient and day case treatment waiting list uh, increased by over a quarter. So there were over 17,500 people added to the inpatient waiting list and over 25,000 people added to the outpatient waiting list just between February and June. Now, those lists were long enough as it was. So again, that gives you a sense of, of the, 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 the addition to the pent-up demand uh, that we're going to see. Mm. Um, now, I suppose one thing that would make me a bit optimistic uh, in, in one sense is the response to the Beyond Call for Ireland initiative. So we had over 72,000 people who signed up for that. So obviously there is a lot of goodwill among medical practitioners towards the Irish health system. So there, there are people there willing to, to, to come in and, and help out and, and increase the, 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 the workforce capacity. Obviously the, the physical capacity is going to take a lot longer. But in terms of the workforce capacity, we do have that goodwill. Uh, and I think that is encouraging. So it's, it's a case of trying to, to, to get as many of those people in as possible, trying to take pressure off the system. Um, one billion is what the HSE seems to be looking for in order to cope um, in terms of a supplementary, bu- supplementary, supplementary budget uh, towards the end of the year. Do you think that will be enough or will there be a need for more? Um, well, I suppose one billion was roughly the increase uh, that was slated in for this year, anyway. Uh, so another billion on top of that. I mean, you're, essentially, you're doubling the, uh, the the increase in the budget this year. Um, whether it'll be enough, I suppose time will tell. I mean, I, uh, I'd be reluctant to make a call on it at this stage, given mm-hmm. uh, given the uncertainty in relation to COVID. But I think certainly, you know, I, I wouldn't see it coming in anything less than that. Certainly. Okay. Um, just finally to yourself, Alan, private hospitals, we saw they played a role mm. uh, during the height of the pandemic. Do you think that they will play a role again? Well, I think that's been explored at the moment. The, um, as you know, April, May and June, the private hospitals were essentially in public control. And as Paul Reid said on Sunday, that they need to take some learnings about how that was done. Uh, there were many things. It was an expensive way to do it. It wasn't very efficient. Continuity of care was 
disrupted and nobody's criticising those decisions that were made in, a, in the heat of a really uh, scary and, and terrifying threat. But now we need a camera look at that. We need to really tease it out. How do we get good value for money? What works for the private hospitals and the people that they serve? How do we get continuity of care preserved? And we would be arguing that the practitioners should be involved in that as well. The last deal was done in a hurry between the HSE and between the private hospitals. We need consultants around the table and ideally patient representatives too so that we have a, a proper sustainable way of doing it. But I think they will put, uh, be there. They'll definitely do some of the elective work and uh, some of the urgent cancer work that has to be done. I think you will see private capacity being used uh, right. a lot. All right. Well, thank you all very much for joining us this morning. Um, that is Mary Favier, Dr. Mary Favier, Irish College of General Practitioners and Cork-based JP, prefer, GP, rather, uh, Professor Alan Irvine, who is a council member of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association and a consultant dermatologist and also health economist at UCC, Brian Turner. We'll be back after this. Today with Sarah McInerney on RTE Radio 1.